So, it's pretty weird at the moment in the world, isn't it? So, this week on Download This Show, we want to ask a really simple question. We know technology has a role to play in the age of COVID-19. Testing, managing misinformation, there's also a bit of an impact on our mental health as well. But what exactly do we want from the tech industry to help with the coronavirus crisis? Also on the show, forget school roll call, facial recognition in schools. Is that a thing that you're okay with? Because it is coming. And will it ever be possible to get conspiracy theories off YouTube? All that much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. I'm here in studio, possibly for the last time in 2020, two guests in studio. We're going to have to work out a better solution for this uh, for the remainder of the time that we are on this mortal coil. But for the time being, in studio from Good Game Spawn Point, Angharadi Yo, welcome back. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here. If you happen to be watching on the uh, video, as, uh, she's also extremely well branded with her GGSP. Oh, uh, yeah. Watch the show. Watch the damn show. <laughs> Alongside Angharad, we have uh, he of the. Are we going to commit to he of the wider <laughs> BBC Click family? Yeah. Uh, BBC Click expat, <laughs> uh, Nick Quick. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, do, hands up if everyone else feels like we're living in one of the flashback scenes from a post apocalyptic movie where they always cut back and go, geez, it just didn't seem like that big a deal. I until. would love if that's the end result. <laughs> I don't want this to become something where we're like, wow, we really did not take that seriously. Hey, mm. and the repercussions were far worse than I anticipated. Yeah. I wasn't nervous until I walked in and I saw people sanitizing door hinges. Then I knew stuff was getting real. Yeah, everything in this room, I must say, there's so much hand sanitizer in this room that I've inhaled enough alcohol to have a mild buzz. Hand sanitizer. <laughs> hand sanitizer isn't as effective as hand washing. I know. I did that too. I did that too. Well, I'm just trying to help you, Mark. Not helping my hands up. <laughs> That's clean, Mark. <laughs> All right. There's a few things to get through. Uh, you'll be hearing uh, Nick and Angharad uh, not just this week, but next week, because we're going to do two shows back to back to work out how we're going to do the show remotely in the future. So I hope you like them. Uh, but I do think it's important that we do start to talk about um, the relationship that the tech industry has with what is affecting the entire world right now. What responsibility do tech companies have in the age of coronavirus? I see this as a two-pronged thing. It's money and it's information. So obviously a lot of tech companies do have a lot of money and that money can be funneled into places that help with relief. Um, it's also the types of things as workers working from home. Um, tech has a really big role to play in that. So I know that like uh, Discord, for example, which is a voice chat system that mostly gamers use, have done things like um, taken the cap off streaming or increased the cap on um, numbers of people that can be in kind of peer-to-peer -peer streaming oh. so that people can kind of like hang out and have some social interaction. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Apple uh, closed all their retail stores outside of greater China and was saying that hourly workers would still be paid as business as usual. Don't know if that includes casual workers, but it is a step. Um, and then there's information, which is Obviously, a lot of these companies have a lot of control about the flow of information, what gets pushed to the top in their algorithms and what doesn't. So I do think there needs to be a good crackdown on making sure misinformation isn't spread. And there's also really cool initiative. If you haven't heard of it, it's called Folding at Home. So it is Folding, folding at Home. This sounds very high tech. <laughs> yes. So 
It's basically a disease research program that simulates protein folding. And the idea behind it is when you learn about how these proteins fold, you don't have to understand the science completely, but proteins are a key component of these various diseases and viruses. And when you understand how they fold and move, you understand a lot more about them and thus how you can combat them more effectively. So Folding at Home is a research program that basically uses what they call distributed computing. So anyone can download this program and it uses the computing power of their personal PC to run a bunch of calculations mm. and feed that data back to the researchers. This program's been running for about 20 years and it's pretty amazing. Uh, but now they also have... COVID within there that mm. they can test and do these protein foldings mm. with. So if you've got a powerful computer, even if you don't, every little bit helps. But especially if you have a computer that has a really good graphics card or CPU, I would recommend looking it up, folding at home, and you can, you know, help with some of the research. I was a little part of me kind of hoped that it would just fold my clothes because <laughs> when you're in self-isolation, it's like, like you know, you, you're stuck there by yourself. You sort of have no excuse. Do you not like clothes folding? Look, you get I, went, to get the creases. I went through that Marie Kondo phase That's where everything true, yeah. was really well folded. <laughs> and let me tell you, it lasted about three months. And now when three I get months home, is pretty good. you can pack a lot of pants in your suitcase <laughs> with that method. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Yeah, except but, my suitcase ain't going nowhere. Yeah, exactly. Travel restrictions in place. I think it's a quite an interesting issue, this, because obviously tech companies is you know, what I specialize in and looking at their corporate responsibilities, definitely something. If you look at the way in which technology companies play a larger and larger part in our everyday lives and are more and more in cahoots with government, particularly in the US, um, you can see in which we are turning to tech companies more and more to solve our, you know, social economic problems, our real world issues than ever before. Um, Trump was saying that, you know, Google have come up with this new algorithm and a new website that'll help diagnose people for coronavirus. It sounded just like Google WebMD. Yeah. Putting your symptoms will determine if you have it. Yeah, I think that Trump must have gotten some advice uh, where someone said, oh, Google are working on something. So he just went with it and said, oh, yeah, they're doing this, that and that. But actually, Google and other (laughs) massive tech companies are doing some things to help, like ensuring that their search results are accurate, putting the right information at the top of search results. Um, the Google has different healthcare subsidiaries, one of which is called Verily, um, which has been in the news this uh, week, but um, has been going for the past few years. It's also got another health startup, which is all about defying death, so cheating death, a company called Calico. But anywho... I was going to say, <laughs> that, that goal seems suddenly very attractive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think that um, what's come out of it is questioning whether or not we want technology companies to have access to our medical records. Mm. Um, and a lot of the ways in which tech companies operate is quite fast and reactive. So so the way in which Verily um, put their pilot project, made it live over the weekend there, um, some might say that was a bit rushed. On the other hand, people might say that was really quite effective and innovative to be able to so, respond that So what quickly. did they do? Sorry. So they've, uh, they had a trial project in the works where they were hooking up healthcare professionals um, with a kind of sort of Google Maps type feature where they would recommend different sites that people could visit to get more information on, on coronavirus. This was just a trial program with pilot test sites so they're not actually saying that there were real test sites people could go to um but that was one of the projects they were working on and they just made it live at the weekend so there's a website you can go to and it'll ask you different questions about whether or not you have symptoms of the virus one thing that is a bit unclear about it is the effectiveness of that tool though because when people actually put in real symptoms that they might have it directs them to their local gp so it's more like an online platform to raise awareness and better educate people about 
the coronavirus mm. as opposed to a kind of um, a symptom diagnosis. Yeah. I, for one, want to see Amazon deploy all of their drones to oh, uh, deliver people I, things when they're in need. I said we should be investing in drone delivery yeah. schemes right now. I'm telling you. I feel uh, like drone delivery is one of those things where I love the idea of it right up until the exact moment it decapitates a dog while yeah, we yeah. deliver. <gasps> You can visualise it. so dark. Did, yeah. Did, what, did, <laughs> <laughs> right up until the moment when it, it does, the, it. when it, you know, they decapitate a dog. We're trying I to deliver quotes. I would say that dogs should be kept indoors anyway. Have you told the dogs that? No, I just sure mean you shouldn't have your dog that. running around in your front yard. What about the backyard? <laughs> Why is it coming in the backyard? The it should knock. I actually think it makes more sense for drone delivery in the backyard. It's more secure, right? I don't 100%. like that. I don't like I don't like random drones. <laughs> That's where a, I draw the line. It'll be a few. That's where you draw the line. <laughs> I also want to know what Elon Musk is going to do. Oh well, obviously he's, he's yeah. going to be a spin-off twelve-part <laughs> podcast. What? What's Elon doing? As soon as he tweets about something, then that'll be uh, the main focus of everyone's um, news I coverage. Want, I want the Corona version of the mini submarine. I mean, <laughs> what are we doing? Oh, what are we doing? Let's not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Otherwise, we might have some. But is it allowed to be in your backyard? Is my question. No. <laughs> I mean, the, the, it's funny because a lot of the. I mean, we know that Alphabet, the parent company of Google, have, as you say, they have been investing in um, in health, and e-health has been in it. Not e-health, strictly speaking, but but health startups has been a really massive growing area in the last couple of years. And it's one of those interesting sort of inflection points where you do expect that all of this investment that has felt very moonshot-like over the last couple of years, you sort of expect that in moments of crisis like this, suddenly some of these companies actually suddenly become quite useful. But I, I guess it's very early days. It's not totally clear. Oh, my God, I just touched my face. <laughs> I've become that guy. It's so paranoid about touching his face. Uh, I, it's not to become totally clear where some of these startups figure into this, and maybe it's because this feels kind of un, unexpected. I'm, I don't know about you, but I've never experienced anything like this in my lifetime, even when swine flu and bird flu were happening. I don't feel like it felt this dire yeah or this widespread or spreading this quickly those it's the general overarching sense of anxiety that i can't remember i mean in my lifetime the last time i remember this was in the days after 9 11 and i don't want to complete conflate the two because obviously they're very different mm. but what it has struck out to me is in some ways this has made the world feel simultaneously smaller and much bigger you know we're obviously a lot of us are isolating mm. we're all a meter and a half apart mm. from each other right now in some ways we're all staying away from each other for the betterment of the wider community as we should do but at the same time, it does also feel like this is something that the entire world is facing. And I think it's been a while since we've had something that feels like a really tangible global threat. I have Climate to say, change notwithstanding. Yeah, I have to say, I think because of the rise of social media, and it's so fitting, you know, that we're talking about this on this show in particular, but with the rise of social media and, and using WhatsApp and Twitter and Instagram and all the time communicating with different people from around the world and sharing stories and sharing videos, I feel like there's so much more hype and so much more attention and daily minute by minute updates mm. um, on the status of things that it can cause some degree of anxiety and that is actually something that tech companies are now starting to address whether or not you know on the one hand they're innovators but maybe their tech enables that kind of too you know too much use of their platforms and therefore you are starting to see companies like apple and google restricting different apps on their platforms like the iStore and google play where they're you know they're they're actually out they're going out there and they're vetting mm. different um apps to make sure that they're coming from reputable and reliable sources to therefore not cause this widespread panic even further do you think that the flow of information 
now that it is that much quicker is part of what's making this seem bigger? Or do you think that this particular virus is spreading very quickly? Well, they're not mutually exclusive, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, scientifically, believe the coronavirus is spreading more rapidly, three times as fast as the common cold, common flu. They're not mutually exclusive, but I do think that one informs the other's anxiety. I think, yeah, there are obviously the the baseline medical facts of how fast it's spreading. And I should say, um, if you're listening to the show for medical facts, don't. You should be listening to CoronaCast uh, mm. with Dr. Norman Swan right now for all the most up-to-date information on the coronavirus. But talking about the effect it's having on us socially, I don't think you can ignore the impact of social media because you've got celebrities posting, hey, I've been tested positive on Instagram. You've got people posting kind of bored in self-isolation or quarantine. You've got people on particularly Twitter, I've noticed, borderline lambasting each other and telling each other off about, no, you should be doing this, you should be doing this, you should be doing this. And some of that advice is correct and based in science, but it's the level of intensity with which people seem to want to tell each other what to do. And again, some of it rooted in fact and science and and quite right, but it's the compound effect of it strikes me as being quite unhealthy. Well, yeah, I've been noticing a lot of people who do not have any medical training, kind of cherry picking advice and then implementing that advice on other people rather than directing people to the medical advice Mm. itself. Mm. So that becomes a really difficult pile on effect as well, because you have people saying like, I went and visited my parents who are a bit older and then other people jumping on saying, you can't do that. You're at risk of killing them. Yeah. Which is a bit insane. I mean, and, and again, I think some of that is rooted in the science that we understand, but I think it does speak a little bit to how we communicate with each other in times of massive crises. And because most of the communication we're talking about on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram is public, you're being party to conversations that you might not have been 20 years ago when they were phone calls or text messages. I think that adds to a layer of... Anxiety is a bit of a catch-all here, but I think Mm. it adds to a layer of of uncomfortability, perhaps. Mm. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture and the age of the coronavirus. Uh, I'm in studio here, possibly for the last time this year, with uh, Nick Quek, part of the wider BBC Click community. He's a metre meter and a half away from me. I can barely make that. <laughs> uh, and Angha Radio from Good Game Spawn Point. Mark Fennell is my name. And uh, you will be hearing from these guys this week and next week. We're doing two shows back to back. Interesting note, uh, at the moment that we're recording, schools do remain open. And there's been a fascinating story about the use of facial recognition technology in schools, particularly a Melbourne startup. Nick, uh, what exactly is going on? Yes, yeah, so there's a Melbourne startup called Loop Learn, which um, specialises in facial recognition technology predominantly for the classroom. So their tech enables teachers, that's what they say, enables <laughs> teachers to do roll calls much faster and more efficiently and more effectively. A large proportion of, of a classroom time is dedicated to roll calling, apparently. Not that I can remember that in my day, yeah, I have to say. Um, but uh, this startup promises to install these cameras in your, in your kids' classrooms and be able to better keep track of them throughout the day. Um, Obviously, huge amounts of uh, security concerns here and privacy concerns here, especially about filming children. Um, And it's a pretty interesting, shall we say, um, issue right now. If 
Angharad's head shakes any harder, she might sprain something. <laughs> I hate this so much. There is absolutely, in my opinion, there is. In my opinion, there is absolutely no cause for this kind of technology to be implemented in this way. It is being used as a testing ground mm. because it's a lot easier to weasel your way into testing on. It, it's actually easier to weasel your way into testing on children because they're not really making the decision for themselves. So if you put it in via a school or something like that and you say, this is a really good technology that's going to help you, they go, oh, we want the best for our kids. It's a lot easier to slip in. If you were to say your workplace is now going to have cameras all over the entrances and it's going to determine when you walk in and when you leave, you would say, absolutely not. That is ridiculous. That's a really huge invasion of my privacy. But, you know, it's using these children as a testing ground for this technology, which will no doubt then try to be implemented in other scenarios. I think you've touched on two things there. One is, you know, the concerns for this guinea pig testing with kids. Um, In this particular instance, um, apparently we don't know whether or not um, parents were notified that their kids were going to... No, sorry. In this particular case, parents were notified and they didn't receive any backlash from them, apparently. I don't Um, think they can properly opt out, though, as well. Well, yeah, I guess the question is if you install a bunch of cameras throughout a school, it can choose to not recognise a face, sure, but the Mm. cameras are still there and you mm. can't... You know, you, it, it doesn't know that it can't recognise a face until it's told that's until not it, a face yeah, on the database. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, it, in some ways it extends a little bit back to a, a previous time, which is the era of CCTV cameras, where it's like you can only, ca- or, or even to some extent some of the philosophical debates around mandatory data retention, which is you can only, these things are only effective if you capture them at a certain scale, the scale of which can be debated, but then you still have to deal with individual rights and individual privacies. And there will be parents that probably do want to know exactly when a kid is on school property and when exactly when a kid is not on school property. There is a little part of me that has more than a passing interest oh, like, in that. not much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Knock, dad, for now. But, like, I mean, the, I, I don't think wanting to know that stuff is unreasonable. The concern I have, and I think you sort of reflected as well, which is once the data exists, whose responsibility is it What uh, and the carriage of that and... And what we've seen, I guess, so many times in the history of this kind of um, technology is the the bounds of the the control of that data are often really vague. I think we're continually being taught that our privacy doesn't matter, that our data isn't something that we should be concerned about people collecting. And I think when you start... I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think when you start doing that to people at a really young age you're perpetuating that cycle. And of course, that's something that companies want to do because it's extremely lucrative for them. Mm -hmm. But on a personal Mm. level, I don't think that Mm. that's a step towards a better society or whatever you want to call it. It's interesting because I think um, a lot of people that have kids, like you mentioned, Mark, they uh, like yourself, Mark, um, they might see it as an opportunity to better keep tabs on their kids. And that's what um, New South Wales government's uh, opinion on the matter is as well, because they've given a large proportion of funding uh, to this startup in particular. Um, the Australian government have given a lot of money to uh, this Melbourne-based startup. So they have given almost over half a million dollars. And um, they say that the uh, they see the security issues 
um, not being as uh, much of an issue as to the children's safety. Whenever you mention more safety for for children, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people might get blind spotted by the potential um, privacy or data breach implications that new technologies could have. Um, and I think it's difficult maybe perhaps for you and I to talk about that because we don't have kids but as well. I, okay, but also just think all of these kinds of technologies also require people that work at that company to interact with this data. So all it takes really is one skeevy person to get a job at this company and they could, you know, work their way into a position I mean, where they have access to all the data. That's an idea, though, because, like, people, uh, in order to work on a school, you need a working with children check. Do we then need to consider the possibility of a working with children check that extends mm. to people whose technology is in is in uh, action mm. on well, a school, which is a fascinating yeah. concept, really. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in technology, media and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. And have you heard the one about Elon Musk being a devil worshipper? Oh, yes. Apparently <laughs> uh, Elon Musk is a devil worshipper. The Bible predicted the rise of President Trump. Uh, and, of course, the classic, climate change is a hoax. Uh, these are all false things, to be clear, <laughs> in case the ABT legal department is listening. Uh, these are all false things that you can find very emphatically documented on YouTube. YouTube, we know, is filled with conspiracy theories. I mean, the whole internet's filled with conspiracy theories, but somehow YouTube... The algorithm pops it up with alarming regularity. And the question is, can YouTube ever really stem that tide of misinformation? I think it must be really tough for them because their whole system and the YouTube's popularity is based upon this recommendation algorithm. That's what makes them so popular and it keeps people on their platform, which increases visibility on adverts on their site. So their recommendation algorithm that... um, uh, their recommendation algorithm there suggests different videos um, that are similar to the ones that people already watch. So if people are watching one conspiracy video, then it'll be shown another one, then another mm. one, then another one. And who knows where that goes, right? I think it makes people feel clever. And yes. everyone loves to feel clever because it makes them feel as though they see something in the world that everybody else is oblivious to. Um, mm. And I think that that's something that's really, really alluring. But I don't believe that, like... YouTube can't do more. They've already proven that they can tweak the algorithm uh, in order to reduce those kinds of recommendations because they made changes and it did happen. Um, Mm. And then it kept spiking back up. Mm. So I do think that it's tricky, but Mm. at the same time, they've proven to us time and time again that they care more about their bottom line and the advertising than they really do deplatforming people who, you know, are essentially a Mm. domestic terrorist threat. I mean, one of the, 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 the graph you're referring to is really fascinating. So um, they've got this graph where at a certain point they announced that they would improve recommendations and they would um, monitor the use of borderline content. And the drop in that content is... It's pretty significant. Yeah, it is pretty significant. Um, I don't for a second question whether YouTube is like struggling for cash at the moment. Uh, you know, I question that graph actually because when I first looked at it, I went, "Wow, oh my goodness, look at that! Look how effective that announcement's been." Mm. Um, but just because a video gets less views, and in this case, um, it was the that graph shows the, the decrease in the amount of sharing of that video, doesn't necessarily mean that that is a result of any sort of enforcement of any kind. It could just be that that video gets less popular, right? Mm. And then they did another study. Uh, this is the researchers at UC Berkeley that were doing this study. Um, they did another study where they found that um, they were looking at the amounts of uh, the length of time people were watching the YouTube videos, um, and that decreased as well over a number of years. But that may not be a result, again, of this uh, of these restrictions or reigning 
anything. It could just be that people's attention spans have decreased. People are using different platforms, right? Over the mm. years, we now don't just look at YouTube. We've got a range of different companies. Well. crazy content on Daily Motion. Well, we look at any sort of video content on mobile platforms, right? So we yeah. look at our you know, Instagram stories or TikTok or whatever. I do agree that there's the potential that it's not just down to the algorithm and they put up the chart to be like, look how good we're doing, everyone. But I absolutely don't believe that there isn't more that they can do. Yeah, it's, I agree. It, it, yeah. Even if it's not necessarily tweaking the algorithm, if it's just finding these videos when they reach prominence and then taking them down or doing whatever, um, they, there is more that they can do. It's a hard thing to really comment on because of the, the nature in which videos and propaganda and conspiracy videos might be uploaded to sites and comments and posts might be uploaded to social media sites in particular. If you look at Facebook and you look at the number of people that are moderating for offensive um, posts or, or illicit activity online there, they say they've got you know 20,000 moderators that are looking at this. But if you look at the number of Facebook posts, you know, for instance, there's hundreds of thousands posted every second. So to be able to say, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to take uh, a stance here and go through and mitigate against this. I'm not sure right now if they have the AI capability or algorithms in place to actually do that as opposed to just using brute manpower or power. I'm also just vaguely curious as to why more stuff isn't just pulled off. The sh- the, like, that, I think that's my thing, thing. Yeah, because I mean, there's been a, it's been a bit of a gradual series of iterative iterative movements that they've done over the years. And sort initially, their number one stick was basically like, "We're going to demonetize you, so you um, crazy conspiracy theorists cannot make money from this." And then there was that, and then there was pushing down their position within the algorithm. But there's a certain point where it's like, well, some of this some of this stuff's in a grey area. I get that, and then there's stuff where it's like. I you can think, just pull stuff. I think the problem mm. is that people get really up about uh, free speech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they feel silenced. And, that you creates know, its own problems. Yes. Um, so I think that, you know, they are in a really difficult position in terms of that. But then basically what needs to happen is they need to have an editorial policy. And they don't it, really I, have that. I don't know. That. I, I think that that really would really aggravate a lot of people that believe in, in you know neutrality and the, and the freedom of speech care. on the internet. I think <laughs> a lot of, no, but a lot of people I think it's, go online and they still want you know they want to have that level of anonymity and they want things to be uh, neutral as opposed to having some the, sort of big brother come along and say no, those videos are not acceptable on this platform, so we're going to remove them. I think looking at this particular instance, we're talking about conspiracy videos. Who determines that? Well, it's a team at YouTube. We determine what's a conspiracy and what's not. Where do you draw the line? It's a bit of it. It's not a hard and fast way of measuring things. I don't believe that anything can be truly neutral. And I don't believe that it is worthwhile allowing that kind of content to be widespread when we have literally seen the effects of it. We are literally seeing real world, extremely damaging things happen by this kind, not specifically necessarily conspiracy theories. It does, I think, extend to that, but by dangerous content being left up in the name of free speech. It's an interesting uh, problem that really goes back to the roots of the internet itself. And you mentioned this concept of net neutrality, which of course is this idea that that has proliferated for a long time. It's sort of baked into the origin of the, the internet, wherein that which is uploaded, all things that are uploaded are treated equally. That being said, the practicalities of net neutrality around the world have been eroded. Different telecommunication companies will give preferential treatment to Netflix or Disney+. Plus. I mean, mm. the, it, it, the concept of net neutrality is, in some ways, it's, it's core to the idea of the World Wide Web and the internet, but how it plays out in reality is really complicated. And just to take your point there, I think 
for a long time, technology companies, YouTube and Facebook in particular, have lent on this aura of net neutrality, which is like, we don't want to get into this. We don't want to be making the decisions. I think somewhat we actually have to say you are responsible for shaping the worldview of literally millions of people. Let's get into it. Let's work out where the, like to say that it's a, it's a difficult conversation. It is a difficult conversation, but let's have the difficult conversation. But what I, you're calling for is basically removal of, of certain videos. And how many videos are there out there? How do you physically do that? But can you uh, it, make, it, it can just be one million, million dollars. Oh, is, is it is it is it is it algorithmic based? In which point the tech isn't there to do that yet. So but they you need can a combination. They can, yeah, I think it's a combination. But they definitely can remove things that are of really high prominence, and they still don't. Nick and Angarad will be back next week uh, and download this show. A very big thank you to you, Nicholas. Quirk. Thank you very much indeed, Mark. For now, to you, Nicholas. That sounds like a parent, oh, don't, don't I? Nice. Uh, and Angarad, uh, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. We'll catch you next week. Uh, and now it is time for a great communal hand sanitization event. That sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> like, I've had a lot of hand sanitizer go up my nose. Uh, we'll catch you next week. My name's Mark Fennell. Thank you for listening to Download This Show. <laughs>